Well, good morning and welcome to Abundant Life. We're so glad you're here today. We stand. Let's do some singing together.
Salve! 
Come on, let's just give him praise. Man, I love that bridge where it just says that my debt is paid and is paid in full. I love that because, you know, in Romans 5, 6, it says, even yet while we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. And I'm just really grateful because in, in Romans 5, 8, even the, the Christ, the God that loves us, that sent his son for us, that even while we were still sinners, Christ showed that he loved us by reaching down and sending a savior and redeeming and changing us. And I'm so grateful this morning as we worship that we can celebrate that and we can give, give God thanks and honor and praise and glory. So as we continue to worship this morning, I want you to remember and recall that, that this is not anything that you or I have ever done to deserve this. It is only by the holy work of God that we're changed. So let's continue to worship this morning a God that gave everything for us that we might see eternity. So let's lift this up. You give life, you are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope, you restore every heart that is
with all our hearts that that you're great and you're holy and Father as we look back and we see the ways that you've moved as we talked about last week God I pray that we would recall that and that our hearts would be drawn to worship that that would be our first response would be to worship the King And Father, we we praise you this morning because you're taking something broken and you're healing it and you're restoring it and you're making it new and our hearts just say thank you. Father, you deserve all this praise. No one else deserves it. We recognize that you are making us new and you're sharpening us and you're changing the way we think about life and relationships and people and God, do more in us to be more like you. Father, we praise you this morning. We thank you for all that you're doing in this place. You deserve the praise and the honor and the glory. And we love you. And it's in your holy, holy, holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We're so glad you're here this morning. You can clap. It's a good thing to praise God with, the, with clapping. We're grateful that you're here today. Would you shake somebody's hand? Welcome them here to this place. We're glad you're here. Hey, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you guys. Like Sean said, we are so So glad you're here with us today. And hey, if you're watching online, we're glad you're with us too, but you really ought to come check this place out and these people out if you have a chance. Hey, if you're new to Abundant Life, there's a thing in the seat back in front of you that we call a Next Steps card. So maybe you've been here for a while and you just haven't fully connected. Would you guys, first time guests, and those of you that haven't connected, consider filling that card out and maybe dropping it in the offering plate when it comes by in just a second, or even better, is stopping by our Next Steps desk out in the lobby. In the Next Steps desk, we have some amazingly nice people that would love to talk to you. They don't want anything from you. And while you're there, you can pick up one of these books right here. This fearless book is really pretty incredible. It's the story of where our church abundant life has come from and also where we're going. And it celebrates this fearless series that our pastor's going through and that we're gonna be looking at the next two years. It really is awesome if you haven't seen it. Now, 
the cool thing about the story of Abundant Life is all the little stories that are intertwined, including yours. And so we wanna celebrate those. We have a room outside called the Story Room. It's actually right out this door over here. If you would stop by after service and meet up with some of our pastors, some of our staff, and share your story with us because we know every story matters to God. Now, one of the reasons why we can be so crazy fearless with Jesus' love is because we have a very generous church. It's one of our core values. We believe in giving away everything that God has given us. And so if Abundant Life is your home, you know we've got three ways to give. You can give online, you can text to give, or you can use the envelope in the seat back in front of you. If you're just visiting, this offering is for, for people that call Abundant Life home. And I tell you what, I wanna pray for us right now for this offering, but also that all of us would be able to overcome any fear by standing in Christ's faithful love. I'm gonna ask our ushers to come get ready to take up our offering, and would you guys pray with me? Father God, Lord, we come before you because you are holy and mighty and powerful. And Jesus, we thank you and celebrate you because you've already won the victory. So Lord, our prayer, my prayer for all of us up here and everybody down there and everybody watching online is that God, we would be able to stand in a place and beat fear because of your faithful love. Lord, I pray for this offering that every dollar and every dime would go to free people from the hurt, the pain, the brokenness, and give them that victory that is Jesus. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and it's all in your name that we pray, amen. Dance with us, dance. 
Do you guys know how a blade is made? Yeah. A skilled craftsman takes the metal, feeds it through the fire over and over again. That craftsman tests the metal, proving the metal, making it stronger, making it harder. Do you know that's what God does in our life through the fires of life, the trials of life? He's feeding your faith through the fire, and the fire tests the metal of your faith, makes it stronger, makes it harder. And then that skilled craftsman, he takes it from the fire, he starts to mold it, he begins to shape it, and then he begins to sharpen it. And it begins with a rough stone. The rough stone knocks the rough edges off, right? And that's what God wants to do in our life as he begins to sharpen your life, knocking the rough edges off. And, and then there's a fine stone where he begins to really fine tune it, sharpen it to precision, sharpening the edge so it's razor sharp. Did you notice what God wants to do in your life this morning? The children of Israel have just crossed the Jordan they're about to go into battle with a real adversary, a real enemy. They're weapons in the hands of God. You understand this morning. And do you know that you and I are, we're in a war of our own? That we wrestle not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6, 12, but against spiritual powers and principalities. This is not a flesh and blood. Spiritually, the enemy is the one that you can't see. And did you know that God wants to sharpen your sword? You see, for some of us, honestly, we've got a dull blade. And today, God wants to begin to sharpen your blade, to sharpen your edge, so that you can begin to be sharp in your Christianity and sharp in your spirituality. And I want you to know that today, as the children of Israel were making ready for war in Joshua chapter 5, that's where we're going to study from, that they were probably sharpening their swords as ancient warriors would have as they begin to go to war. But today, listen carefully, God wants you to know that your weaponry is not swords, that you have an enemy, one that you cannot see, that wants to keep you in captivity. And today, God doesn't merely want to sharpen your sword, he wants to sharpen your soul. It's what he wants to do inwardly to you and me personally. He wants to sharpen our weaponry. Uh, Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, it says this. So it was, when all the kings of the Amorites, who were on the west side of the Jordan, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, they heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted, and look at what it says, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. Now this is the irony, I think personally, as you look at this account in history, for 40 years, Israel stayed on the other side of the Jordan in fear of their enemies, and for 40 years, their enemy was in fear of them. Do you understand we have an adversary? Jesus called him Satan. He really is the opposition, a counterfeit king over the kingdoms of this world. And did you know that he wants to hold you in captivity with fear because fear and uncertainty and doubt will always in some way keep you in mediocrity. It keeps you in the wilderness, that false sanctuary where you never try anything risky and you're only partially obedient but not completely. You see, you've been set free by what Jesus did at Calvary no longer under Satan's tyranny, just like Moses set them free and delivered from, from Egyptian bondage, and he took them on a journey to a land that flowed with milk and honey. That's what he wants to do in your life and mine. It's our story. But so many Christians never get to the other side because of doubt and insecurity. Fear has stolen what amounts to their God-given territory. 
And I want you to see this series is about retrieving what has been stolen by the enemy. He wants to retrieve that stolen territory in your family. God wants you to retrieve that stolen territory in your marriage. He wants you to retrieve that stolen territory from your finances. But I want you to see two weeks ago as we crossed the Jordan, you remember what it meant to cross the Jordan? It meant total submission, no longer self-preservation. There's a moment in your life as a Christian where you've got to decide, I am going the distance. No more playing it safe. No more hanging on to my life. I'm letting go of my life. And that's how you get to the other side, out of the wilderness, into the promised land, spiritually, what Jesus called life abundantly. But understand something. Just because you're in the promised land doesn't mean that there's not going to be any battles. No, the reality, the battles have just begun. When they were in the wilderness for 40 years, they fought almost no battles. Do you know they fought far more battles in the promised land than they ever did in the wilderness? And they're now preparing for battle. And for many of us, we're, we're preparing for battle. We've crossed over. We want to go the distance with God. We want to walk in the power of God and the promises of God and the presence of God. But understand, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be very, very costly. Now, what's amazing, I love this part of the Bible because it's real history. And I just want to point something out here because this is a time where a lot of people want to say the Bible, it's not real, you can't trust it, and you know, antagonists uh, want you to question the historicity and the reliability. What I love about the Bible is it's not blind faith. You understand it's faith built on evidence. This is real history, and it's been confirmed over and over again by the modern science of archaeology. So there's extra biblical record of this very time in history besides the book of Joshua. Uh, did you you know that in 1887, archaeologists discovered in Egypt something today known as the Armana Tablets in Egypt in 1887. And then the Armana Tablets, what you have there is a record of these very Canaanite kings from this time in history, and they are petitioning Pharaoh, a man in history known as Amenhotep III. They are pleading with him to send military assistance to them to help fend off the invading what they called the Hibiru. Now, who were the Hibiru? Does that sound at all like the Hebrew? Yeah. So they described the Hibiru in these tablets as a mighty migrating people. And these people that were migrating people that were mighty in number are now attacking the Canaanite city. And so you have this tablet now, actually several of them, where these Canaanite kings are petitioning for help from the Pharaoh of Egypt. Of course, the Egyptians didn't come to help them because they knew who the Hibiru were. Yeah. They remember about 50 years earlier about this god of the Hebrews that had parted the Red Sea and destroyed a lot of Pharaoh's army. You bet they weren't coming to help out with the Hibiru because they knew they were the Hebrew. I want you to see, we can trust what we read when you have in your hands the Word of God. Now, what's the practical reality of this ancient history? What we learn is that in 1 Corinthians 10, their story is an example to us because in some way, it's our story. What we're learning practically is that the Israelites were finally possessing by faith what fear had stolen. 
And that's why we called this series Fearless. You cannot live fruitfully while you live your life fearfully. You can only live fruitfully in the land that flows with milk and honey if you start living faithfully. And when you become full of faith, you will become faithful. And that's what they're doing. They are redeeming their God-given possession. God had promised them this land. And what God had promised, he will always perform. But just because God had promised it, they still had to take possession of it. You see, there's battles on the way. But from those battles, there's great blessing. Uh, but there's battles that are coming in your life and mine too, because it's about conquest. And what we're seeing here in Joshua 5 is preparing ourselves for combat if you're going to make conquest. Now, if you're going to live forever as a prisoner of war, and that's how a lot of us live, there's no battles in your life when you're a POW, a POW of the enemy. The battles begin when you begin to realize, wait a minute, I'm free. I don't have to live like I'm in captivity. I can live victoriously because Jesus said, if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. But understand, it's still not going to be easy. It's going to be very, very costly. The battles are just beginning. I've had two people in the last few weeks uh, come up to me independently of each other. They don't even know each other, but they've said the same thing. So I released my first book about a year ago, Defeating the Enemy, right? And uh, they said, Pastor Phil, I just want you to know that after reading your book, my life has actually gotten harder. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not trying to make your life harder. Here's what they said, independent of each other. They, they said the same thing. It's like now my eyes have been opened. Yeah, exactly. See, the reality, before your eyes were closed, you couldn't even see the adversary. You couldn't even see that you were in a prison. You're the worst kind of prisoner, a prisoner unaware. But all of a sudden, your eyes are open, where now you can see the war clearly. You can see the battle lines that have been drawn. And all of a sudden, you understand your enemy. And ultimately, what you realize now is the battle has begun. I want you to see you're making conquests now of the promises of God in your life to live out practically what Jesus has said about about you already and that means we must prepare for combat this is an allegory this is real literally Ephesians 6 12 you remember what it says we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in heavenly places understand we have a real enemy and I'm not talking about the one you can see I'm talking about one that you cannot see that we are warring with and wrestling with daily so they're preparing for combat and uh, like all ancient warriors that were going for war, they're probably putting on maybe some you know, war paint, I'm not sure. And uh, I, I know they would have had out their swords and they would have been sharpening their swords. They can see Jericho, it looms large in front of them. They're on the other side of the Jordan and just two, three miles away stands Jericho. That's how close they are now to the adversary. And those walls were fortified, kind of like these walls behind me. This is the wall of fear that many of you wrote something on recently. The things that you fear, those are the strongholds in your life, the walls that seem to hold you instead of Jesus saying, I want you to live freely. These walls in some way are what keeps us in captivity. And those walls were going to fall in just a few days. But there's some unfinished business for these Hebrew warriors on this particular day. And undoubtedly, they're, they're sharpening their swords. And Joshua's command staff is in the war room. And they're waiting for Joshua to come back with a military strategy. And they're getting ready for combat. And, and uh, they're preparing themselves mentally and physically. They're sharpening their swords. And then Joshua comes in. And he's, of course, the high commander. And his command staff looks at him and says, 
says, okay, Josh, let us have it. How are we going to go against the enemy? What's the strategy going to be? And then Joshua says, well, guys, listen, there's been a change of plans. Seriously? Well, Josh, tell us what's going on. What are we going to do? He says, well, guys, listen carefully. The Lord has spoke to me. Now they're really leaning in. Well, come on, Josh, tell us what it is. Guys, I have to tell you, the Lord told me that he wants to do something through you, but first he's got to do something to you. And so this is the military strategy. This is what Joshua says. Look at verse 2. All right, here, here's the plan to go against the adversary. This is an amazing military strategy. Here it is, verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. Huh? What? What kind of military strategy is this? Can you imagine what they're thinking? Joshua chapter 4 tells us that 40,000 men of war crossed the Jordan, a giant army by these ancient standards. 40,000 men, and you want them to be circumcised? Seriously? What in the world is going on here? Does this take a little explanation? Come on, some of you are going, what? I can't believe we're talking about this in church. Hey, if it makes you uncomfortable, you can't imagine what it's doing to me, okay? <laughs> now, I'm going to tell you, if you'll stay with me, there is an amazing theology and imagery here that God's going to teach you. Something amazing, if you'll stay with me. But just imagine what it must have been like in this tent, this war room this day, as he explains this strategy for attacking Jericho. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. Understand that previous generation did not hearken to the voice of the Lord. They did not obey the voice of the Lord. And I'm telling you, it never ends well when you do not obey the voice of the Lord. It never ends well when you don't obey the word of the Lord. So God told them, I want you to circumcise your sons. There's a reason I'm going to share in just a minute, but they didn't do it. For 40 years they lived in doubt, and doubt always leads to disobedience. Disbelief and disobedience are always two sides of the same coin. And so now, in essence, you got Joshua, he's the high command of this army. Can you imagine, he comes in and his command staff is around, okay, Josh, tell us what we're gonna do. How are we gonna take on the enemy? And all of a sudden, Joshua says, guys, here's what we're gonna do. Here's our strategy. We're going to circumcise our entire army. And can you, can you imagine these guys? It'd be like. Are you kidding me? Seriously? That's the strategy? We're going to incapacitate our army in front of the enemy. What kind of strategy is this? Listen carefully, church. Joshua understood what you and I need to learn. 
We cannot win the war without until we learn to win the war within. We have seen the enemy and he is we. And see, Joshua is teaching them something they're going to need to know as they make conquest for the land, uh, the promised land, as they make conquest and battle for it. It's not just physical, it's spiritual. It's always spiritual. And you see, we cannot win the war without if we don't learn to win the war within. We have seen the enemy, and he is we. We are our own worst enemy. And ultimately, what he's saying, guys, wait, before you charge the hill, just, just hang on, before you charge the hill, listen carefully, there's some unfinished business that we need to take care of. And I'm going to say today, most of us here, if not all of us here, have a little unfinished business in our life that we need to take care of because God today wants to sharpen your sword to a razor edge. You are a weapon in the hands of God. Listen carefully, we're called as the church of God to be the end of the spear, to push back the dark of our world to shine as lights of God, lights of heaven in a dark and dying place. But for so many of us, we have dulled our blade. We have a dull edge. We're no longer a threat to the enemy. We become like butter knife believers. All right, we we're bringing a butter knife to battle with us. What kind of warrior would bring a butter knife to battle? I'm trying to tell you today that you may have a butter knife, but God wants to give you a sword. He wants you to have a precision edge. And it's not about what you look like outwardly or what you do outwardly. It's what you allow God to do in your life inwardly. Listen carefully. There was this covenant God made with the Jews 400 years earlier. Abraham, the father of the Jews. And he says these words to Abraham in Genesis 17. I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. And I also give you and your descendants after you the land in which you're now a stranger, all the land of Canaan. There's the promised land. As an everlasting possession, see this covenant God made with the Jews, it is binding, it's unbreakable, it's irreversible, it's irrevocable, it's everlasting. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. You see, God makes this covenant with Abraham, the father of the Jews. I'm gonna give you this land. This is what we're gonna call the promised land, this ancient land of Canaan, a land that flows with milk and honey and it's through you, Abraham, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's through you, the promised promised seed of Genesis 3.15 will one day emerge, the Savior King that's going to come and die for the sins of men and to redeem the sins of men and all women. Listen carefully. Jesus was a Jew, and God is making this covenant now with Abraham, the father of the Jews, but he says this, I want there to be a sign, and the outward sign of this promise I'm making to you is that you're going to circumcise your babies, your, 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 your male little boys, right? Now, there's an amazing theology I'm going to tell you in a minute. Just hang on. Uh, this was more than just medically, clinically. It's something we still practice today in many places, a circumcision for the sake of hygiene and clinical reasons. But there's so much more going on with what God is teaching them. This was an outward sign that was to be ultimately an inward condition. Circumcision. But for 40 years, they hadn't practiced it. So God is teaching them, listen, before you charge the hill, before you go into battle, there's some unfinished business in your life, and you need to learn, listen carefully, you need to learn that to live fearlessly, you've got to live obediently, completely. Yeah. 
You see, you haven't been obedient completely, not completely, you've obeyed partially. But friends, listen carefully. There's no such thing as partial obedience. You're either in the will of God or you're out of the will of God. Uh, You're either in the promised land or you're out of the promised land. And for many Christians today, uh, we try to straddle the Jordan. We got one foot in the wilderness and we got one foot in the promised land. We got one foot in church, one foot in the world. We come to church, give me just enough of Jesus to get my little Jesus fixed, but not so much of Jesus that I actually have to change my life. And I want you to see the problem for many of us here is we're living in mediocrity. We talk all about what Jesus said, I've come to give you life abundantly, but the reason you haven't experienced the abundant life in your marriage, the abundant life in your home, the abundant life in your finances, the abundant life in every area of your life is you're withholding certain parts of your life. And until you learn to live completely obediently, you can never ever live truly life abundantly. You cannot live abundant if you're not living obedient. You see, we've allowed the world to dull the edge of our sword. And God wants us to begin to sharpen our sword. I'm talking specifically about sharpening our soul because you cannot live fearlessly until you learn to live completely obediently. If you live forever right on the line, kind of on the edge without stepping over the line. Listen, I have done some hiking. I've done some hiking in the mountains and I know I get a little bit nervous when I get too close to the edge of a cliff. You understand what I'm saying? You can't live boldly while you're dangling over the edge of a cliff. What God wants to do is get away from the border, quit living on the fringe, and trying to figure out how close to the line I can get. If you wanna live boldly, it's about learning to live completely obediently, because when you do live boldly and holy, you've got the power of God now on your life, and you become a threat to the enemy. Let's pick it up right here. Look at the next verse. It says this. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Now watch this. In the Bible, Egypt is always a picture of the world. Egypt is always, in some way, a symbol of the world. And here's what God is now teaching these ancient Hebrew warriors. Listen, I got you out of Egypt, but it's time to get Egypt out of you. You know, part of our problem today is we got too much of Egypt in us. We got too much of the world in us. Hey, God is saying today, as a child of God, I bought you by the blood of the Son of God. I alone have redeemed you. I alone am the one that died for you. I'm the one that rose from the dead now to redeem you from the world. It's time to get the world now out of you. Let me ask you, are you more worldly or godly? What part of your life would be less godly than it is worldly? See, that's what God is doing in the life of these ancient Hebrews now. They could have said, well, wait a minute, we crossed over, we obeyed. Yes, they obeyed, but they haven't yet gone all the way. They haven't obeyed completely, not totally. And I want you to see that is some of our problems personally. Because if you don't obey God totally and completely, he can only bless you partially. Now, I'm just going to be honest. I want God to bless my life. How about you? I want to live a blessed life. I'm not bashful about it. I want God to bless me. I don't want to live a natural life. I want to live a supernatural life. 
I want God to bless me exponentially, but here's the deal. God cannot bless disobedience. He can't. It goes against his nature as God. He's holy. So I'm serious. What part of your life, this is part of your life today, God wants to, God wants to deal with that unfinished business. What part of your life is less godly than it is worldly? You see, that's what's going on here. He's saying, look, I have gotten you out of Egypt. It's time to get Egypt out of you. And I'm convinced that is the problem in modern church life, modern Christianity. Listen, God has put you and I as Christians in the world to change the world, but too much of the time the world gets into us and changes us. You see, God has put you and I as the church in the world to change the world, but too much time, the world gets in the church and has changed the church. You see, he's gotten us out of Egypt, but he wants now to Egypt get out of us. And that's why he says over and over again, 2 Corinthians 6, 17, he says, come out from among them the world and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. Here's what God is teaching. Listen, we are in the world, but we're not to be of the world. He's saying come out from the world. He's talking about this wicked world system that is anti-God, that is anti-holy. He says come out from among them. Be separate. Listen, it's about separation. Circumcision was about our sanctification, the fact that God were to be set apart unto God and set apart from the world. What that means is the world is going this way, and we need to deal with some really worldly stinking thinking. The world's going that way. Guess what, guess what way it means for us to go? See, the church is always meant to be countercultural. It was a countercultural movement from the early days of Christianity that radically altered all of history, Roman society, because it was countercultural only when the church became mainstream and, like, we want to prove how cool we are to the world. All of a sudden, we don't have a message worth following, we don't have a life any longer that says, hey, I want to be like that instead of that. He says, come out from among them. Yeah, 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 you're, you're to love them and, and by all means befriend them, and, and, uh, but, 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 but don't be of them. Look at what he says here in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world. The world is trying to conform you. Egypt is trying to mold you. He says, be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is a good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Every single day, the world is trying to dull your blade. The world is trying to dull your edge. And the point is, we've got a bunch of Christians with swords. The edges have been dulled. It's no longer sharpened because the world has dulled it to the point where butter knife Christians and God is saying, hey, renew your mind. When you renew your mind with the Word of God, get into the Word of God till the Word of God gets into you, and all of a sudden it begins to shape you, and it begins to sharpen you, and you get your edge back as a believer, and all of a sudden you become a threat to the adversary, a threat to the enemy. You, you renew your mind with the Word of God. You want to know the will of God. The will of God is through the Word of God. And when you begin thinking with the Word of God, you begin thinking with the mind of God, you've renewed your mind, you have renewed the edge of your sword. Now all of a sudden, you've got a sword with a sharp edge to precision. Look what it says here, 1 John 2, 15. Do not love Egypt. Do not love the world. I've gotten you out of the world, now you get the world out of you. 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, this doesn't mean we're not to love the people of the world that are far from God. It's not what it's talking about. Jesus said in John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God so loves the people of the world. We're to love what God loves. What he's talking about here is don't love the things of the world. The things of the world that are anti-Christian, anti-Christ, anti-God, a wicked world system that stands in opposition against the things of God. Don't love the things of the world. It's time to get Egypt out of our life because God has delivered us from Egypt. He wants a people that is more godly than worldly. It is impossible, church, to imagine a holy Christ being followed by a band of unholy Christians. Yet in many cases, that's the problem. We're more worldly than we are godly. It's time to get Egypt out of our life. Uh, it, it, you know, it's a common question. I used to ask it. Maybe you've been asked it. As a dad, I've been asked it often. As a pastor, I sometimes get asked this question. Hey, Pastor Phil, is it a sin to fill in the blank, right? Hey, is it a sin to this? Pastor Phil, is it a sin to this? Your children may be asking this. Hey, Mom, is it a sin to do such and such? And th those are questions you ask as a new believer in spiritual infancy, but those aren't the questions you ask when you're in spiritual maturity. Because normally what people really are asking when they ask, hey, is it a sin to such and such? What they're really asking is, how close can I get to the line without ticking God off? Right? Tell me the line. How close can I get to the sin without actually committing the sin so I can come close to the sin without actually making God mad at me? That's what they're really asking, right? And so here, instead of asking, quote, what is the sin? Because that's easy to answer. It's easy. Uh, it's the will of God by known through the word of God. I'm just telling you, I'm gonna say this because it needs to be said because some of us honestly may not know this. If you're sleeping with somebody you're not married to, it's a sin. Amen. Now I know the world's not saying that. I know the world's not saying that. I know what the world says. Sleep with whoever you want, whenever you want, however you want. It doesn't matter if it feels good. I, I know that's what the world says. I'm telling you what God says. Do you want to be godly or do you want to be worldly? If you're living with somebody like you're married, but you're not married, I got to tell you, God can't bless your relationship. You want God to bless you relationally, then you've got to be obediently completely. Get married. Do you want the blessing of God or not? That's what it comes down to. If you want God to bless you financially, and I'm, you guys know it's not health and wealth and prosperity theology, that's not at all what I'm talking about. But here's the reality. God wants you to be healthy. He doesn't want you to live in financial captivity. But you can't ask God to bless you financially if you're not being faithful and obedient in your financial giving. If you'll take the step of faith, which is obedience in action, which is faith in motion, you'll see God go in motion. You want God to go in motion? You put your faith in motion. It means obedience, right? Now here, most of the time, honestly, the, the sin is easy. I mean, that's one-on-one -on -one Christianity. Yeah, that, that's immoral. What God says, it, it's immoral. The world says it's, it's okay. God says this, I'm a Christian. Guess what? I'm going with God. Jesus wins. But I want to pastor you to spiritual maturity. What is the filter we should use as Christians? 
uh, for our every decision or every action? Well, here would be one filter. Uh, remembering that just because something may look okay and in some way may even appear to be godly isn't necessarily holy. And God wants us to begin pursuing a life that is holy because he is holy. And here's what I want you to see. When we talk about fear and living fearlessly, you can be living fearlessly and boldly when you begin pursuing truly a life that is holy. And check this out. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't an option. Look at what God says. He says in 1 Peter 1.15, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, not some of it, but all of it. Uh, because it's written, be holy for I am holy. What's it mean to be holy? Holy means righteous. Holy means sinless. Now listen, you and I, as fallen sons of Adam, this side of heaven, may never ever become truly sinless, but when you begin to pursue a life that is holy, I promise you will begin to sin less. And less and less and less. And that's how you make conquest of the promised land. That's when you step into what Jesus called life abundantly and you start living in the power and promises of all that God wants to give you personally and you begin taking back that stolen territory from the enemy. This is how the Apostle Paul put it. Listen, Paul wasn't talking about, is this a sin, is this a sin? That, that, that's easy. That's one-on-one Christianity. Here's what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10. Here's the filter. Watch this. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify You want God to begin truly sharpening your sword. Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. You want God to begin putting a true edge on your life with razor-sharp precision so you can begin to think critically in the society that's increasingly in a place of hostility against Christianity and what we believe as Christians in terms of our morality, etc. You want God to begin really sharpening you, sharpening your soul, not just your sword. Stop asking if something just is a sin. Here's what Paul's saying. Look, if it's morally lawful, it's not sinful. He's saying if it's not sinful, it's lawful, but it's not necessarily helpful. And so the question should become not simply is this a sin, so I can see how close I can get to it, but will this help me grow spiritually? If it doesn't help me grow spiritually and it can't bring God glory, if it doesn't edify me in some capacity personally in my relationship with Jesus, just because it may not be sinful and yes, it might be morally lawful, doesn't mean I should go ahead and do it. Uh, Here's, I got one example after another, just practically what this looks like, all right? Um, It is not sinful at all to have a glass of wine or a beer with your bride, it's not. But just because it's not sinful doesn't mean you automatically should. Here's what I'm talking about. So I remember years ago, it's embedded in my mind. Somebody asked my dad why he never drank. He never drank. Guess what? He didn't say because having a drink is sinful. He didn't say that because it's not. But here's what he did say. I never drank because I didn't know which one of my five children might become an alcoholic if I did. Now, I know which one of his five children probably would have. See, in his mind, it's not about the fact that it's sinful. It's lawful, but is it helpful? Will it help my kids grow up to be free from potentially something of captivity? 
I have secular music on my playlist, guys. Not everything secular is sinful. On the other hand, if you've got secular songs on your playlist full of ungodly lyrics, lewdness, and profanity, and vulgarity, don't think for a moment it is edifying you spiritually. It is dulling your blade. It is desensitizing your soul toward the things of sin, the things that God hates, right? Oh, this is what I'm talking about. The things that we watch on television, TV. Listen, I have for years and years, this is the work of God in my life, just recently, last two or three months, for years and years, I was very guarded about what I would watch on TV or movies because here's the reality. My mind quickly goes carnal anyway. I mean, I can become so worldly so quick, right? My heart is prone to wander anyway. I need to stay near to Jesus. And so consequently, I was very guarded for years about what I would watch on TV. I mean, pornography, that's easy. Flashes of nudity, oh, it's just part of the movie. Wait a minute, that's going straight into your soul. It is doling your blade. The sexual innuendos on the sitcoms, I, I, for years I just didn't watch any of it because I don't want it doling my edge. And then honestly, about two, three, four years ago, I, I realized I'm starting to watch things I didn't used to watch, like tolerate sitcoms and things that I usually, I usually wouldn't have, right? And part of it, honestly, I think subconsciously what was going on, the world kind of wears you down. The world has a way of doling your edge. In some cases, other Christians. So I heard, you know, people I respect, godly people, Christian people talking about this sitcom, I've never watched it, cultural phenomenon called The Office. Now right here is the point in the sermon where everybody just stands straight ahead, look forward, don't blink. Don't look right or left, don't give yourself away. Poker face. I'm giving myself up, you don't need to give yourself up, okay? Because three-fourths of us watch The Office, I know. All right, relax, you're not a bad person, you're not going to hell, relax, that's not what I'm saying. But uh, I began to watch The Office. Everybody's talking about this show. I'm gonna watch it and see what it's about. It's a cultural phenomenon, obviously, everybody's talking about it. You can, of course, Netflix and see all these past you know, shows and kind of. So uh, two, three, four months ago, oh, actually four or five months ago, I started watching The Office. And guess what? I got it. Hilarious. It is so stinking funny. I mean, it drew me in, just like it draws everybody else. Like, I couldn't wait to watch the next one. It's hilarious. I mean, I love to have fun. I like things that are funny. Uh, guys, I think Jesus had a great sense of humor. I really do. I don't think he walked around sackcloth and ashes and woe is me. You know why? Because you couldn't have gotten 12 men to follow you around for three and a half years like that. I think they had a great time together. I really do. Great sense of humor. I love having fun. And I love this show. I did. It drew me in. I'm watching it, you know, sexual innuendos. Okay, but I'll watch it. I'm going to watch it some more. And it's hilarious. I mean, laughing out loud stuff. And what makes it funny, of course, is they say things that other people just think in real life but would never actually say. That's what makes it funny. So this one episode gets to a point overtly sexual now. Sexual innuendo. I mean, just funny, 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 funny. I'm telling you. And I remember laughing out loud, just spontaneous, laughing out loud. It was so funny. And guys, then it hit me. The Holy Spirit of God hit me. 
what am I doing? I am laughing at something God abhors. I'm laughing at something God hates. I'm laughing out of the sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. What have I done? How did I get it? I never used to want to watch this. The world has a way of wearing you down and dulling your edge. And at that point, listen, I repented. And this is the work of God in my life just recently. I repented. I said, God, I'm sorry, never again. I'm not doing it again. I want back my sword. I want my edge back as a follower of Jesus. I have had a dull edge for too long, and Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm just telling you, I'm not watching the sitcoms anymore with the innuendos. I'm not watching the movies with the uh, themes that, you know, you fast forward those parts. Listen, if you got to fast forward like 14 times in one movie, maybe it's not a movie you ought to watch. I don't know. I'm just saying. All things are lawful for me, but they're not helpful. It doesn't help me spiritually. It doesn't edify, strengthen me spiritually. It doesn't bring God glory. And I want you to see that, that we need to get back our sword, lay down the butter knife that we've been going to battle with and get back a sword, get back a weapon before you can become a conqueror in Christ. Your heart must be fully conquered by Christ. What part of your heart has not been fully conquered? God wants all of your heart. You see, that was always what God wanted through this Hebrew rite of circumcision. It was never about the outward sign. It was about the inward condition. Look at what God said in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. It's about the heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You see, to God, it's always been about the heart. I wanna circumcise the heart. That circumcision of the heart means the total submission of the heart. No part of my heart will I withhold from God. You see, the problem for the human being has always been a problem of the human heart. Jeremiah 17, nine says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You say, but Phil, I know my heart. No, you don't. Your heart will lie to you. Your heart will mislead you. Don't follow your heart. Follow God. Follow the Word of God. Yes, it's costly. Obedience is not easy. But it's how you make conquest of the promised land that flows with milk and honey. No, if you're sleeping with your girlfriend, obedience is not going to be easy. It's not. Let's just call it the way it is. If you're living together, you're not married, it's, it's gonna be costly to be in the will of God and no longer out of the will of God. It's gonna cost you. It is, it's hard decision. You make your decision, but your decision will define your direction and your direction eventually defines your destination. One leads to the blessing of God, the other leads away. The world's way. And I know what I want, I want God's blessing to abound upon my life. And that means I will withhold no part of my heart, the circumcision of the heart. You see, ultimately, Hebrew circumcision was a picture outwardly of the surgery God would do on our hearts inwardly. Colossians 2:11, the circumcision made without hands. In him, you were also circumcised, Jesus.
with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Do you realize what Hebrews 4.12 says? The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce even to the division of soul and spirit, the joints and the marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Do you realize what happened at the moment of salvation when you gave your heart to him? You were delivered from your sin and the word of God came in the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God took the Word of God sharper than a two-edged sword and cut your soul free from your spirit so your spirit could live. It's what Jesus called being born again, and he cut your flesh, your fallen nature, away from your spirit so that now the Spirit of God can live in you, and all of a sudden your flesh, that fallen nature, has no power over you. Do you see that's the circumcision of the heart? And I want you to see that in Hebrews 4.12, what's in view is not that sword I just had in my hand. What's in view is this little sword right here. Can you see it? It's small, isn't it? It's just a scalpel. The Word of God in the hands of the Spirit of God is a scalpel that wants to do heart surgery on you. What would you rather somebody do heart surgery with? That sword I had in my hand or this one? Yeah, this is meant for precision. You know what God's trying to do in your life today? That unfinished business, you partially obeyed but not fully obeyed the Word of God in the hands of the Spirit of God, trying to do a little heart surgery on you just to cut apart that flesh, that little area of your life that's never been fully submitted. That's what he's trying to do. Do you understand? That was what was always in view through this Hebrew rite of circumcision, the circumcision of the heart. And you know what would happen is they would cut away at that flesh, there would be blood. You know why? Because it's a blood covenant that God has made with us as he cuts away the flesh from off of our life that fallen nature to live now the victorious Christian life. It says, so it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in camp till they were healed. Yeah, you bet they did. <laughs> then the Lord said to Joshua, this day I have rolled away your reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. Joshua named this place where this happened Gilgal. Can I tell you why? Because it's called rolling. Gilgal means rolling. And guess what? There's a picture here God has embedded. It's amazing. It was here that he rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Do you understand? It was at the cross of Calvary that God rolled away the reproach of our sin. He rolled away the reproach of our world. Christ is our Gilgal. He has rolled away the reproach of our sin because he took it all upon him. And when he rolled away that stone, he rolled away sin's penalty. He rolled away Satan's authority. He rolled away the power of our enemy. He has rolled away every place of captivity. He has rolled everything away that would hold us in fear and bondage so that we can win today in our conquest for the promised land. And it was there for the first time in the promised land they celebrated the Passover. 
Exodus 12, the children of Israel kept the Passover. You know why? To celebrate the redemption from Egyptian tyranny. Jesus Christ is our Passover. As those ancient Hebrews would take the blood of a lamb and put it on the doorposts of their home, all that prophetically picturing another lamb, God's lamb. Jesus, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is our Passover lamb. He took our sin upon him, our every single stain, all of our shame, rolling away the reproach of the blame. Now look at what it says. And they ate of the produce of the land. Remember, this land was going to be fruitful. It was going to be beautiful, a land that flowed with milk and honey. For the first time, they enjoyed the bounty of the Lord's table, no longer eating from the crumbs of the wilderness wandering. They ate of the fruit of the land, the Passover, unleavened bread, leaven in the Bible, picture of sin, so many images, I wish I had time. It says, on the very same day, then the manna ceased, day after they had eaten. You remember manna? God gave it to them from heaven. He's saying, look, you're on the other side of the Jordan. I'm not gonna bottle feed you anymore. You're growing up. You're not a baby spiritually any longer. I'm no longer gonna spoon feed you. I'm not gonna put the bottle in your mouth. You're now in the promised land. You're gonna feed yourself on the produce of the land. You see, that's what God is teaching you now. It says they had no more manna, but they ate the fruit, the food of the land, the land of Canaan that year. Guys, God wants you to know the joy of life abundantly. No longer living on the breadcrumbs of this world. He wants you to know the abundance of a life lived faithfully and obediently. And I want you to see, by obeying God faithfully, no matter how costly, you can live your life fruitfully instead of fearfully in the promised land spiritually. Would you pray with me? Let's bow together. Jesus, I pray for every person in this place. I pray for every person watching online that God, not one among us would miss the opportunity to let you do this amazing surgery inwardly. Sweet friends, listen. The circumcision would cause a wound. I will promise you, before God uses a man or a woman greatly, he has to wound them deeply. If you've been wounded deeply, God wants to use it to prepare you, to use you greatly. The only question left is will you let him have all of you, all of your heart, withholding no part of your heart, every area of your life. The surgery of the heart. I've told you the work of God in my life. I let the world dull my edge. I had lost my edge, a dull blade but I'm getting it back. If there's an area of your life that you'd say, Phil, honestly, I haven't fully submitted, haven't fully consecrated, haven't fully given away, but today, God has taken out that scalpel and I can feel him beginning to work and cut away and I wanna surrender fully. There's a part of your life, an area of your life that you wanna fully submit that never has. I just want you to raise your hand very quickly. Would you do that? Say yes to Jesus, yeah. 
my hand is up to. I've told you what's going on in my life. I don't know what's going on in yours, but God is at work in all of our lives. Your hand is in the air. I want you to stand up. Would you do this with me? I want to commit this right now to Jesus. The quietness of this hour, maybe in your living room where you sit and watch this, you can participate right there on the snowy day because you couldn't be here. Let's surrender this right now together. Would you raise both hands in the air, universal sign of surrender. Jesus, today we surrender all that we are for all of you because you are our Gilgal. You have rolled away our reproach. You took all of our sin and you rose again. You rolled away that stone and you rolled away all the weaponry of the enemy. And I want you to take, dear God in heaven, the word of God in the hands of the spirit of God. And I want that inward surgery made without hands that you would cut away at the flesh that still clings to a heart that desires to be godly. Just pray that in some way, your own words, you and Jesus. And Jesus, I pray for every person here today that every single one of us would desire the circumcision made without hands, a heart of complete submission, that we would withhold nothing from the one that withheld nothing from us, that we could walk in the victory of Calvary in the land that flows with milk and honey. In Jesus' name, would you give him glory with me? Praise him today, would you? He's worthy, isn't he? He's worthy of our praise. Guys, I love you a whole bunch, I really do. I'm thankful for you. Such an honor to be your pastor. I hope you have a super, super blessed day. Hey, there are people and pastors up here who wanna pray with you. If God's dealing with any area of your life, you have questions or some area you want somebody to partner in prayer with, that's why we're here. God bless you, God go with you.